0: Welcome to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. I'm Darren Hefty, along with my brother Brian, and our topic is phosphorus. This is one of those nutrients that I don't have to sell it too hard that, man, your crop really needs to have an adequate supply of phosphorus. I think we're all pretty aware of that. We'll, we'll talk about some of the things around this nutrient, what can help make it more available for your crop, and really what what you should be targeting out in your fields for Parts per million, those types of things as well. Our phone lines will be open, 844-44-AG-PHD, if you've got a question. Brian, you want to talk phosphorus? you want to dive into mailbag? What do, you, yep. what do you want to start with?
1: I do. Well, because your opening statement said adequate phosphorus. So that's really the thing. What's adequate? And one of the things we talk about quite often is look at your crop and your yield goal, you can pull this up on the Ag PhD Fertilizer Removal app, and you can see how much phosphorus it's going to take, or more specifically, how much phosphate it's going to take to raise that crop. And that's excellent information to know. But there are two things. Number one, how does the phosphorus get into the plant? And number two, does your plant, do, do your plant's roots, are they going to get 100% of a soil's phosphorus out, 50%? 10%. What's that figure and how does that change based on your soil? And that's what makes this thing so challenging. So, just a couple of things to begin with. One, you've got to have a great root system on your corn, your soybeans, your wheat, any crop that you're raising if you want to pull as much phosphorus out of the soil. But the other thing is mycorrhiza fungi. And there are other living microbes in the soil. But mycorrhiza fungi specifically has been shown to help a plant bring phosphorus in. It basically connects to the plant root and gets to areas in the soil the plant root can't get to or doesn't get to, and it helps bring phosphorus into the plant. So that's the reason why we have fallow syndrome sometimes if you don't have good mycorrhiza fungi growth, for example, if you had like I say, fallow one year, or let's say you just planted a crop like radishes that doesn't support mycorrhizae fungi. A lot of those microbes die. And then the next year you go, "Whoa, why is my corn all purple? Well, the reason why is because there was just as much phosphorus in the ground, but it couldn't get into the plant because you didn't have good mycorrhizae fungi helping your plant explore more soil. So anyway, there's quite a bit to this conversation, but I would just say, yeah, phosphorus is tremendously important the good news is if you own your ground, I'll, I'll be honest, there's not a lot of excuse, I mean, unless you just absolutely can't afford it, but there's not a lot of excuse to not put extra phosphorus out there because it's not going to leach away on you. What I'm saying is if you go, well, 50 parts per million is a good level, Yeah, not, not often, so why not boost it to 75 or 100 parts per million just as an example? And worst case scenario, you're just going to take an extra year to mine that out of your soil. It's not going anywhere. It's a good thing to have plenty of phosphorus out there. So we just encourage you to really take a look at this particular nutrient and how much you need on your farm.
0: Yeah, the other question we get a lot about phosphorus, Brian, goes back to are talk about alfalfa and perennial crops that are going to be out there for a number of years since phosphorus doesn't move very well in the soil. There's always talk about, well, could I mix it with nitrogen or something else that would help it move through the soil, or do I just need to put a bunch out there in advance?
1: Yes. So if you are thinking that in your perennial crop you're going to go top dress phosphorus, yeah, good luck. That's not getting in, getting into the plant. It's just not going to happen. So, I, I mean, sure, eventually, will. 10 or 20 years down the road, we've been able to prove that, but I would like it now. I would like it this year or next year. Well, if you put phosphorus out into the soil before you seed that alfalfa, now you got yourself a chance, but laying it on the soil surface just isn't going to do any good. Now, Back last summer, we had Bill Brush on the radio show, and he was just on the show with us last week as well. But anyway, last summer, he made the comment that, because I asked him about trees, how do you do it in trees where you're not working that ground for many, many, many years? And he said, well, we found if we get the concentration above 250 parts per million on phosphorus, then it moves down in the soil. (laughs) Okay, I don't know a lot of alfalfa producers that are throwing out oh, I don't know, um, 1,000, 1,500 pounds of MAP to get that kind of concentration. So since you're not going to do that, you're thinking, oh, I'm going to throw 50 or 100 pounds out. Put that 50 or 100 pounds out the year you seed and put it down in the ground. You'll get a way better return for your investment. And if you own the ground, who cares? Because, I mean, sure, 10, 20 years later, you'll get that phosphorus out, but why not get it sooner rather than later?
0: All right, a lot of discussion about phosphorus today. Again, uh, you can always email us a question radio at agphd.com or you can give us a phone call 844 44 agphd. Want to dive into the agphd mailbag for a tiling question right now? It's the mailbag. This is from AJ over in Minnesota. Uh, All right, guys, I had a design firm map a tile plan for me in a field, and the tile pattern goes right through our sandy areas where our CEC is less than five. My harvest maps in these areas show yield stress in the dry years, but great yield in the wet years. Sulfur and other leachables are low on my soil test, so water is moving through does tile help in these sandy areas or is my tile contractor just trying to get me to spend too much money?
1: Well, I don't know about the spend too much money. It might just be that's the way the ground lays and it's, it might be cheaper to run through that area than to go completely around it. I don't know without looking at it, but I would just say, you're not going to get any help there, most likely. So I would, I would work around that. If you do go through it, I would, really consider either sock around the tile right there in that area or narrow slot tile because you don't want to have fine sand fill up your tile line.
0: Yeah, a lot of experience with tiling on our farm and we've got a few sandy spots too. We We generally don't need to put tile through those sandy spots. In fact, in one sandy spot, just the way the land lays, we've at our tile underneath the ground in the sandy spot to kind of uh, sub-irrigate in that one little part of the field. Thanks for the question. We'll dive right back into more questions and talk phosphorus after this.
2: Morton Buildings has served the American farmer for more than 120 years. From manufacturing our own building components to constructing your building, Morton takes pride in being the industry leader in post-frame construction by providing a quality building and exceptional customer service. A Morton is built to last for generations. To get started on your next project, please visit MortonBuildings.com
0: My mom's got a new case i tractor, and it can do it all. Palmer
3: Amaran, four counts of yield, theft, resistance to groups two, four,
0: nine. You ain't got nothing on me, man.
3: We've been surveilling you. And now we've got Tough 5EC, a tank mix partner that'll make sure you and your gang of resistant weeds never
4: see the daylight again. Crack down on repeat offenders. Add Tough 5EC to your post-emergence tank mix. Learn more at toughonweeds.com. Always read and follow label directions. Tough is a registered trademark of Belsham Crop Protection.
5: Maverick Corn Herbicide from Valent USA has proven to be a key part of growers' success in fighting problematic weeds. But don't take it from us. Take it from agronomy manager Nate Honeck.
6: We've seen tremendous weed control that was sprayed in dry, hot conditions with uh, very little rain within two weeks after application. Very easy application. Definitely tank mixed well with the various products we used.
5: Visit valent.com backslash maverick to learn more about Maverick Corn Herbicide. Always read and follow label instructions.
0: back you're listening to ag phd radio we're broadcasting for the morton studio today talking about a super important nutrient phosphorus for your crop our phone lines are open at 844-44-AG-PHD and you can email us radio at agphd.com all right let's start off down in arkansas get trent roberts with us right now uh soil fertility specialist down at university of arkansas how are you doing trent well darren i'm doing
2: great we're uh we're right in the middle of fall spring right now.
0: <laughs> yeah, this is some. It's kind of fooling some of the some of the trees and bushes out there. I've noticed some buds even up here in South Dakota. It's like, uh oh, that that's not a good sign. We're gonna get cold a couple of days at least this week up here, uh, and I'm sure you'll get cold between now and spring as well.
2: Yeah, well, someone told me uh, the other day, you know, Easter's early this year, so that means everybody can start replanting sooner.
0: <laughs> well, I know my dad would always joke that way, too. He'd say, well, we better get started early if we're going to have to do it twice. And I, I don't want anybody <laughs> to do that. I want everybody to succeed. And, you know, when it comes to fertilizer, though, I, I would say this, we're we're maybe not too early on the fertilizer side. I think even up in the north here, as as the snow is all gone, the frost is all out, there'll be some guys that'll be putting on some manure and some fertilizer here in the, oh, I don't know, next to two to four weeks. And I'm sure down there too, guys are getting excited to get fertilizer out there. Phosphorus doesn't move much for us up here. What, what are your concerns around phosphorus in Arkansas?
2: Well, so we're in a little bit of a different situation because, you know, our soil pHs range all the way from very acidic to very alkaline. So you know, that vast gradient in pH really poses a lot of challenges for our producers because, you know, you can get phosphorus tie up both at acidic pHs as well as alkaline. So we're always in a constant battle of, you know, trying to manage our pH, but also manage our phosphorus availability. But, you know, certainly in our production systems, we've we've got a lot of low soil test phosphorus soils that require, you know, quite a bit of phosphorus and You know, our message is always, you know, if you're in those very low testing soils, the closer to planting you can get, the better off you're going to be. When you're in kind of those medium testing soils, your window to put out phosphorus is much, much wider.
0: Yeah, you mentioned the the pH extremes, and a lot of times we'll be talking about soil pH, and we'll we'll get feedback—not a lot, but we'll get some feedback of why are you guys so worried about pH? And and nutrient availability is is really one of the big things here. Uh, the low, low, low pH stuff—it's uh, it's a whole different battle than than in the high pH. Uh, you know, we think about nutrients that can tie up phosphorus and all the situations going on. Let me ask you this question, Trent. Why don't the guys just put some lime out there and get that pH up or is that a constant yearly battle?
2: Well, so it's really difficult here because, you know, we're almost fully irrigated on all of our major cash crops and your irrigation water source kind of dictates what your soil pH will be. Um, So guys that are using surface water tend to have acidic pHs and guys that are using groundwater tend to have you know, alkaline soil pH is I think the big concern for the guys with low pH is overshooting that optimum range um, because we have a lot of zinc deficiencies here as well. And so their concern for like corn and rice and those crops that really demand quite a bit of zinc is, you know, they can go from a, um, a low pH you know, phosphorus tie-up issue, but zinc is abundantly available to over liming, and now all of a sudden they've kind of corrected their phosphorus, but now zinc is an issue, and so for whatever reason, I think they're a little reluctant just to avoid, you know, over liming.
0: That's a great tip. I, I, I know we would say the same thing on our farm. We've had to lime quite a few of our fields, and. That's the concern we have more than anything is we just don't want to overdo it. A lot of times we'll lime maybe till we get up to a 6 pH and then just see how things look for a little bit. Now we don't have irrigation water that's messing us up. It's just rainwater here and not much of it. Uh, but, yeah, where we've overlimed limed uh, in some of those fields, we've looked at, well, what crops will remove the most calcium so we can try and get back to where we want to be? And that's a lot harder problem to deal with than just not having enough. So, okay, that, on the low pH side, I got it. We we want to watch out for overliming. We want to make sure zinc is still – highly available because obviously if you overdo phosphorus that can impact zinc as well. What about on the high pH side? What are some of the challenges there? And you mentioned if we're irrigating with groundwater that has a higher pH, uh, obviously we're putting millions of pounds of that water out there which is going to change the soil pH along the way and make it higher. So what comes with that? Is it sodium? Is it something else? Well,
2: no, I think just the, the additions of the calcium to the soil means, you know, any phosphorus that we apply is, is more likely to precipitate out as some form of calcium phosphate. And so really our only approach is like, okay, well, if we know what your soil test phosphorus levels are and we know what your pH are, we know that we have to make adjustments to your phosphorus rate to account for that excess calcium.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's just an interesting balance. And I know sometimes we can intimidate farmers a little bit talking about all these balance things. It's like, no, no, just tell me, what do I put out there? Because I understand there's some intricacies here, but, but what do I do? And, you know, one of the things that we get questioned on a lot is, okay, if I've got all this tie up, how much of that can I avoid by simply banding my nutrients right where I want them?
2: Well, and I I definitely think that helps a lot, and and you all, you know, in the upper Midwest, especially the Corn Belt, are light years ahead of where we are here in the Mid-South. You know, we we have very few people down here that have the capability to band phosphorus, Um, and it's something we need to focus on much more down here, but, you know, when you can get those concentrated bands of phosphorus in the root zone, you know, you can reduce your rate significantly just by doing that. Um, but unfortunately, we just have the equipment limitations down here where where our producers aren't able to do it.
0: Yeah, everybody has different systems. That's the fun thing traveling around this country. And you don't have to drive more than a, a couple hours one way or the other. And you see guys doing things completely different, different row spacings, different ways of doing irrigation, if they have access to it or not. Uh, just, just many uh, different challenges. So yes, you're right. In some areas it's like, oh, well, we've got the possibility to band. Uh, and a lot of guys are set up for that in this part of the world. Not not true everywhere. So what what do guys do with phosphorus? Is it typically dry phosphorus being used? Is it a lot of liquid phosphorus? Uh, how are they trying to meet their phosphorus needs?
2: Yeah. So here in the Mid-South, pretty much everything's going to be dry, granular, and it's going to be broadcast and incorporated. Um, every now and then you'll have some that will do a little bit of phosphorus with a starter. Um, but then a lot of times they're also doing a band or sorry, a broadcast application, uh, just to make sure that their phosphorus nutrition is adequate. Uh, but yeah, I would say almost all of it is going to be dry granular broadcast.
0: Very interesting. And then the other side of that, you mentioned uh, due to tie up that one of the strategies they're using is trying to put that phosphorus out close to planting. So is, is a lot of the fertility done this time of year or is there also some fall stuff that gets done?
2: Yeah. So, you know, in Arkansas, a big struggle is just days you can be in the field, which I'm I'm sure it's that way a lot of places, but You know, unfortunately, you know, our producers are kind of hamstrung by when they can work ground. So this last fall, you know, we had an unusually dry fall, so it was great for harvest. People were able to get in and and do a lot of field work. And it goes back to kind of those things I mentioned earlier. You know, if, if you can get your phosphorus out in the fall, you know, we see no appreciable difference between fall and spring applied phosphorus. But we do know that like in those very low testing phosphorus soils, you know, if we can wait till spring, we try to we try to do that. But, you know, it's, it's one of those you got to make hay when the sun shines. And um, if if it starts off raining then all of a sudden we're kind of stuck with, you know, either going out in season or, or doing things that we wouldn't normally feel comfortable with.
0: Yeah, we don't don't like that, that's for sure. We, we don't want to push it. I know everybody's getting excited this spring to get out in fields, but uh, in some cases it might be a better move to wait just a little bit. Talking with Trent Roberts down at University of Arkansas. Trent, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on once again. Talk more about phosphorus coming up after this. If you look close enough, you can see the hidden potential within your fields. That's why an
4: agroliquid nutrition plan starts with the crop and identifies the precise combination of primary nutrients while focusing on the support of secondary and micronutrients. So every nutrient is working in harmony for your crop to reach its full potential, maximizing growth while offering lower use rates. Apply less, expect more? Precisely. Find an agroliquid dealer at agroliquid.com.
8: Every season, you're collecting yield data on virtually every acre of your farm. But what good is your data if you never use it? Put it to work with Verify. Verify takes yield data directly from your combine and instantly generates variable rate fertility maps based on crop removal, ensuring your crops get what they need, right where they need it, no matter what equipment you run. Go to Verify.com to find an expert to help you get started. That's v-r-a-f-y.com.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We're talking phosphorus today, and you're in for a treat because we've got one of the guys who knows how to turn phosphorus into yield. And that's, after all, what we're, we're all shooting for is, man, this fertilizer is expensive. I don't know if I've hardly ever had a year that I haven't said, uh, when I see the fertilizer bill, but turning it into yield is what it's all about. So we've got Temple Roads with us right now. Works with the Extreme Ag Group and Farms in Maryland. Temple, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me today. You know, I always want to look at return on investment with everything I do on the farm, and fertilizer is one of those things that uh, is a necessary thing. we got to use it. we got to feed those crops. But I I want to feed them right. I don't want to way overdo it. I don't want to underdo it. I want to hit it just right on the money. And phosphorus is kind of a tricky one because, well, especially farming in Maryland uh, with regulations and everything around you (laughs) – How do you do it?
6: Well, what we've done is we're trying to figure out, you know, we we keep talking about it all the time. You know, we've had a million million conversations about how to put it in the right place at the right time. You know, and that's what it's really all about. It's about that stage of that crop when it actually requires it. You know, we expect a to put phosphorus down in the beginning, but we expect it, you and me expect it to be there at the end. What's not there at the end, as soon as we put it into our soil, it's trying to get itself locked back up, especially if you've got high. We do is we figure out, like, what is the stage of the crop that actually needs it? 18% of its requirements are used from at, at emergence through V6. And then there's somewhere, you know, a little bit's in the middle there, and then over 50-some percent is used, utilized in our stages. So what we do is we spoon-feed that crop for its requirements all throughout that se- season. You know, and we use a bunch of different products. You know, we've tried NutriCharge and some um, – some other solidizers that basically go in there and they unlock that and we do know that when we unlock it we can get it out of the ground or get it out of the phosphorus fertility that we're putting out there but we do know that a portion of it's going to get locked back up so I kind of think of it as like a key you know you use some of these products sometimes and you can lock it up you can you know you can unlock it use what you need it'll get locked back up so but The spoon feeding is a big deal, especially with phosphorus, and especially if you can get that big bump at the end.
0: You know, when you think about the the whole year, think about the 12 months of the year, you've got a a lot of things going on. You've got one crop, maybe two, depending on where you're farming. You might have a cover crop in there as well. You've got a lot of things that are going to hold that phosphorus for a little bit of time. And some of them, like grain production, you're going to be removing some phosphorus. What do you think about cover crops? I know in your area that's gotten to be very encouraged. Uh, Have you noticed something with that, with that residue breaking back down, how quickly those nutrients are, are recycled? Well,
6: you know, the the one thing that we really try to utilize is, is, you know, we try to, as soon as we get our corn, you know, let's say we take corn out. As soon as the corn comes out, we're going to be putting a cover crop in there. But the first thing we're going to do is we're going to break down that stover. We're going to do everything that we can to break the stover down. And then as soon as we get done with that and it goes in the cover crop, we know that it's going to uptake a lot of that phosphorus fertility throughout that winter months. Then when we go to, to kill that off, That's the other thing that we do. We immediately are putting products on there that immediately are going to break that back down to get it back down in the soil. And that does make a big difference. You know, we were talking a while ago about trying to get organic matter and CECs higher and higher. We've never seen big uh, jumps in that until we started breaking down that stover. This is all part of a big plan.
0: Yeah, it is. It is. There are just a lot of different pieces that that all fit together to do this right. Do you notice phosphorus loss anywhere? I know we're concerned always about any phosphorus on the surface that if we got a big rain and we've got some slope to our ground that we might potentially lose it. So we're always trying to bury it, but we really haven't seen it move down in the soil here. How about in Maryland where you got lighter soils, more rainfall? Is phosphorus moving down through the soil a problem at all?
6: Well, it, they, you
0: know, I guess I'm going to sit here and argue this.
6: Um, <laughs>
0: well, you could just make it easy, Temple, and say, think, just raise 400 bushel corn, think, Darren. You don't have to worry about it. It all gets right, used.
6: Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to utilize it all. But, you know, they, according to the University of Maryland's um, phosphorus management tool, they have shown in certain soil types um, where it, it works its way down through the soil profile further and further and further. I've never seen that, um, you know, personally. But I'm not saying that it doesn't happen. I mean, I'm sure some soil types are different than others according to how much organic matter you have, how, how much your CECs are. You've got to be able to figure all that out. And I don't know that it really moves that much. I've never seen it anyway. Well but I think, I think spoon feeding our,
0: our tool it does. I think spoon feeding like you say can solve a lot of that if you're just putting out what you need when you need it that that is a, a pretty nice strategy.
6: Well I think that that's you know and think about think about this you know th- this year we should be spoon feeding more than we ever have before. you know if we don't put that big front load of fertility out there and it's about managing our, managing our dollars, You know, we're not just managing the efficiency of our plants out here now. We're managing the efficiency of our dollars. How well is our dollars working for us? If I put all of my crap out there, you know, all of my inputs out there, and expect it to be something, and it's not there in the end because, you know, we might have a drought or whatever, if I spoon-feed that crop, I can spoon-feed my money out there as well. That's what I really want to do.
0: Well, that's true, I and mean, you look at what operating operating notes are going to cost this year. It's uh, it might make a lot of sense oh. to make that application partway through the season and save all that interest along the way. Uh, all right, talk to me that's a little right. bit about some of the micros that go with this. We hear a lot of talk about copper and zinc, especially when it comes to phosphorus. For guys that overload the phosphorus it seems like those are the two nutrients they have trouble with or, or vice versa. If those two nutrients are really high, they can perhaps uh, limit how much phosphorus you get into the plant. What do you think with copper and zinc and and how much do you look at those uh, in accordance to phosphorus? I mean, to be honest with you,
6: um, if you don't put a bunch of balanced nutrition out there, nothing is going to work correctly. Like you got, I mean, I'm, I'm dragging in micronutrients Every chance that I get, I have a I try to put together a balanced nutrition I mean, and I probably put out a little more zinc than what most people put out um as far as a total program for the year, but you know i i can't I can't expect zinc to be there and drag everything else in and drag a bunch of you know zinc is a lot a lot a lot of um weight to the grain, and if you can spoon feed that as well, I mean to be honest with you, I spoon absolutely everything
0: throughout the season yeah just in a conversation with an agronomist in our area this morning and he said I just haven't overdone zinc or overdone sulfur yet the more we put on the more gain we've been getting so they've been happy with that how about litter and manure and those types of sources Uh, do you find those sources of phosphorus to be more economical more available is there an advantage to that versus commercial
6: (laughs) well I don't know it just depends on where you are and, you know, in this country, some areas where Matt Miles is, litter seems to be getting pretty expensive. Litter is fairly expensive where I live at. Um, but when you come down to it, you've you got to figure out what, what's in the litter because you're getting much more than just phosphorus. You're getting much more than just nitrogen. You know, in a lot of litters, there's a tremendous amount of micronutrients. I mean, a tremendous amount. And it's a form of, quote, unquote, um, organic fertility versus synthetic fertility, but what does that actually cost you? And then the other thing is, is a lot of legacy phosphorus out there, guys that have been putting on litter for years, when they dump a lot of legacy phosphorus and leg- legacy fertility on that ground, it's locked up in their soil. They've got to figure out a way, especially like this year, to get some of that legacy phosphorus and whatever other fertility is in it and get it into the plant. You know, I've had a lot of questions lately with guys that have unbalanced soil types. You know, whether their their base sats are way off or whether it's just completely off kilter. You know, I think we spend so much time worried about balancing our, our soil, which that takes a lot of time, as you well know. I mean you know better than right, anybody buddy. how long that takes. I think that we can do a better job and try to balance by looking at our base saturations we can have a pretty good idea of the way that our plants are going to react and we need to react to the way that that plant is going to act it's about balancing that plant for me not balancing the soil
0: yeah a lot of great advice there we're talking with temple roads out in maryland and pretty soon down at commodity classic too look forward to seeing you down there temple thanks for being on really appreciate it stay tuned we'll be right back
4: Are you ready for better efficiency, more productivity, higher yields? Then you're ready for John Deere Precision Technology, which starts with three core pieces. First, a G5 display gives fast views of your work and a window to future technology. A Starfire receiver gives you sub-inch repeatable accuracy without an RTK base station. And a JD-Link modem gives you a live view of your entire operation. Get precise and talk with your John Deere dealer or visit johndeere.com backslash base
5: Maverick Corn Herbicide from Valent, USA, has proven to be a key part of growers' success in fighting problematic weeds, but don't take it from us, take it from farmer Rob Schaefer.
7: Residuals have become a big part of our chemical programs with trying to battle water hemp and also mare's tail is our big one. It's done a real good job of controlling those. You don't have to, you know, put a bunch of gallons in your sprayer, cover a lot of acres that way.
5: Visit valent.com backslash maverick to learn more about Maverick Corn Herbicide. Always read and follow label instructions.
3: What's the difference between John, who bought Enlist One Herbicide and Instinct Next Gen Nitrogen Stabilizer, and Tom, who bought Enlist One and Instinct Next Gen and used True Choice? Only about $5,000 extra in Tom's pocket? Choose True Choice and get up to 10% back. It's really as simple as that. Start saving at Corteva.com slash save more.
8: On your farm, you spend thousands on fertilizer every season. But how do you know if any nutrient you apply is paying for itself? Build a fertility plan like never before with Verify. With Verify's soil point-to-yield analysis, you can automatically see the connection between your soil test and yield data. To see which fertilizer dollars will make you money and which won't, go to Verify.com
4: to get started today. That's V-R-A-F-Y dot com.
0: You're listening to ag PhD radio we're broadcasting from the morton studio today talking about phosphorus and also taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844 44 ag uh brian get a few soil tests that came in from spencer and he's out in virginia and this is kind of interesting we were just talking with temple roads out in maryland and Uh, He said, you know, things are different over here on this end of the country. We've got some other challenges with the Chesapeake Bay and how nutrients are managed and those kinds of things. And so it's fitting. It's a a nutrient management question from the East Coast here. Well,
1: hey, yeah, but uh, just hold up for a second. I, I mean, well, he says things are different, and I get that. We, as farmers, all need to be responsible everywhere how we're applying fertility, when we're applying it, where we're applying it. We have to be smart about it. I mean, one of their challenges is just, they've got some lighter soils, and then in some cases, they have tremendous amounts of manure or compost that they have to get rid of, and sometimes there's an awful lot that goes on the same acres. But anyway, there are other people that deal with those kind of things around the United States and in Canada. So, well, I get it. Yeah. Some regulations are different. We all need to be conscious about what's going on, what's happening with fertility all the time. Anyway, go ahead.
0: All right. So, uh, So Spencer says we were naturally high in iron and aluminum in our area, and it tends to tie up our phosphorus, even though our levels are actually kind of high in the soil. We try to band as much as we can and not broadcast too much map if we can help it. Uh, His phosphorus levels are generally in the, and this is phosphorus in pounds per acre, anywhere from 50 on the low end to 300 on the high end but mostly around 150 pounds per acre of phosphorus and this is something uh, as you're listening on the radio it's a malik three
1: okay i i mean that's 150 pounds is only 75 parts per million and that's not high That's not high. That's barely enough. But anyway, go ahead.
0: Well, and I was just going to point that out, that that as you're looking at your soil tests and kind of comparing to some numbers you hear here, uh, you just have to look at what they're measured in. A lot of them, as Brian was mentioning, are measured in parts per million, uh, where this is pounds per acre. And on a six-inch test, uh, usually parts per million times two roughly equals the parts pounds per acre. So anyway, he said we got – a decent amount of phosphorus but he said my question is uh, are our base saturation ratios ideal for our soil types we typically don't have trouble keeping base saturation k above four but our cecs are like five four or five uh and on our magnesium we're anywhere from eight to 20 and our challenge is we've got such high hydrogen 30 or 40 but our ph is in is in the six to six and a half range. I just, I don't understand how to read this test, Spencer, because normally if we're at a six, three pH, we've got 10% hydrogen. So I I think your numbers are way off because as calcium is often in the 40 or 50% range, I just don't think that's quite right. I I just.
1: No. No, that's not the way we normally run soil tests or have soil tests evaluated. So send it to a different lab because I I can't trust those numbers.
0: Yeah. Now on the potassium. We could run some calculations
1: ourselves. If you sent me the numbers, I could put it into our quick spreadsheet to try to figure out, okay, what really is it? But still, I I guess I'm concerned about that. Now let's go back to, he talked about iron and aluminum tying up his phosphorus. No, it doesn't. Not if you're at a 6.5 pH. So if he's having tie up from iron and aluminum, then it's not a 6.5 pH. So there there are many things that I'm questioning about those tests. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I, I, I just don't know. Uh, Now, one other thing too, with the potassium and he feels like they're in pretty good shape on the potassium, but when we look at pounds per acre, again, this test is in pounds per acre, which is great. I I like pounds per acre. Uh, It's generally around 150 pounds per acre of potassium some 200 pounds per acre. So that's, that's not enough. Cool. Yeah, it's not enough to feed your crop. Uh, but it sounds like they're they're putting K out there each year. Uh, so I think that's a good yeah. thing too.
1: They need to do it each year. And then on that lightest soil where they get way more rainfall than us, they should consider a mid-season application of potassium as well. That very well could help in their situation. So normally we only talk about nitrogen, sulfur, and boron as the three nutrients that you need to be concerned about side dressing, uh, making multiple applications, but when the soil's that light and you're in a heavy rainfall area, then you have to think about potassium as well. Hey, I wanna go back to the phosphorus comment that I made. Phosphorus gets tied up with iron a lot of times when the pH is in the fives, and aluminum a lot of times when the pH is in the fours. Just for, I mean, it's not exactly that. that but, so if you're a soil scientist, you're probably gonna go, well, it's exactly, I get I'm just trying to say in simple terms, just to give you a general ballpark, fours for pH, you got an aluminum problem. Fives, you got an iron problem tying up that phosphorus. When you get into the sixes, uh, you should not have an iron and aluminum tie up issue with phosphorus.
0: All right. Well, thanks for the for the question. We appreciate that. Uh, this one comes from Mike over in Minnesota. He said, "I'm an agronomist here. I've got a customer that raises dairy cows, grows a lot of alfalfa for feed, and they picked up a new farm. It, the farm had a hundred pounds of anhydrous uh, ammonia put out last fall, so they've got nitrogen applied there. Is that something where you could still plant alfalfa into this field? They planted drill alfalfa with a triticale nurse crop this spring." Uh, just kind of curious what you think about that.
1: Sounds great to me. I mean, I'm not a big believer in using a a nurse crop, but my point is I don't if you want to raise alfalfa and you're worried about nitrogen being the ground, all oh, that's no concern at all. It'll be fine.
0: Yeah, southern Minnesota, you could absolutely go out there with 20 pounds of alfalfa seed and just go a straight crop. I We had really good luck with that a couple of years ago when we put our alfalfa Yeah, but
1: in. I get it. Some, I, I mean, some people get worried about uh, erosion and let's say it's some sand and they're worried it's going to cut off the alfalfa. I mean, there, there are a number of reasons why you might consider a nurse crop. So, I, I mean, they know the situation better than we do. I'm, I'm just saying... That's something I, I won't do is put a nurse crop in because I want the very best possible alfalfa stand and it's hard to do with the nurse. Crop.
0: Well, and the other thing is then you can't use the best pre and I really like to use Eptam pre. It just does such a good job holding weeds down. We, we were able to get a great crop canopy, choke out the weeds, and we just haven't had a weed control problem at all in two years. So I, I've been happy with that too. So I guess whatever their plan is. Yeah. But so we, let's,
1: let's, let's talk more than just our farm. I mean, we've been talking about Eptam with alfalfa producers for over three decades and it is fantastic. It is by far the best thing you can use in front of alfalfa, but yeah, it's going to kill most nurse crops. All
0: right. Yeah. We can, we can talk about alfalfa a lot more. We, we certainly have on the show, but that, that uh, takes care of Mike's question. Thanks, Mike. We appreciate it. Um uh, Okay. I had a question here. I've got sour, salty soil, and I'm in a coastal area. What would you guys do to to fix that type of soil? And this is one I wanted to add a comment here, too, because uh, we had Bill Brush in, who's a consultant out in, in California, and he said one of the challenges they're fighting in California, normally they had enough water coming out of the mountains uh, from the east and pushing down through the valley heading west and that was enough to hold the pressure of the salt water from the sea coming in from the west underneath the ground. He said they're actually getting some salt coming in underneath in the water table. So that's kind of interesting when they get into a drought and they don't have enough fresh water pushing out, then they get salt water pushing in. I don't know if that's the challenge here for this question, but let's just assume this is an every year problem, wet or dry. We got salty soils and we're in a coastal area. Uh, I I can guess what your answer is going to be, Brian.
1: Well, my answer is I need to see a soil test because I've been in coastal soils that have 15% 15% organic matter, I've also seen coastal soils that are pure sand. So I don't know exactly what we're dealing with here, and so it's it's going to be difficult to make a, recommend, a great recommendation. I'll say this, salt is leachable, so we've got to get it flushed out of the ground. If it's a heavy soil, then we talk tile, and we want to make sure we have great calcium levels. If it's light soil, then I I don't know I mean you just want to make sure you have again good calcium levels get your soil balanced and hopefully it fixes itself
0: yeah and it could certainly be an irrigation water problem too if it's if it's irrigated ground there's a lot of high sodium and high salt type water that guys are using as well so send us a soil sample we'd be happy to take a look stay tuned we'll be right back
3: What's the difference between John, who bought Enlist One Herbicide and Instinct Next Gen Nitrogen Stabilizer, and Tom, who bought Enlist One and Instinct Next Gen and used True Choice? Only about $5,000 extra in Tom's pocket? Choose True Choice and get up to 10% back. It's really as simple as that. Start saving at Corteva.com slash save more.
4: Higher yield potential starts with the season-long systemic disease protection of Zyway brand fungicides from FMC. Zyway brand fungicides protect corn crops from key foliar diseases and support physiological benefits that help develop healthier, higher-yielding corn for a difference you'll appreciate at harvest. Visit your FMC retailer for an at-plant advantage. Always read and follow all label directions. Get more durability for less downtime with Soil Warrior Strip Tillage from environmental tillage systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and reduce passes and fuel usage. Now that's ROI. Learn more about ETS at SoilWarrior.com.
8: For the smallest investment with the biggest impact on yield, upgrade your planter with Germinator Closing Wheels from MFG. To see how we stack up against the competition at a fraction of the cost, call us at 712-520-6051.
0: listening to ag phd radio thanks for joining us we're right in the middle of the ag phd mailbag time taking your calls and questions at 844 44 ag phd or you can email us radio at agphd.com. Uh, i had a question come in from cc or a comment i should say you guys were talking about field pennycress as a weed of the week i never had this weed on my farm until i bought some hay from out of the area. And now I've got it all over. Yeah, that does happen. There's no doubt about it. When you bring in different feed source, And sometimes too, it'll come in with manure. I know we had one time, we took manure from a horse barn. We took manure from the zoo uh, before. And sometimes there's some strange weeds that, that turn up after you spread some different manure from other areas uh, because you don't know what they're feeding those animals. And in one case, uh, I think we've, we traced it back to uh, uh, cotton seed meal that came up and had never had that before and we had a weed from the south that all of a sudden appeared on our farm so yep totally get it just uh, get after it now the pennycress is oftentimes a winter annual so you can deal with it really early in the spring if you wipe out that first flush a lot of times that's the last you'll see of it this year so good luck Uh, all right get a question in from Jeff over in northwest Iowa he said, we're considering doing a tank mix with Miravis top, warrior insecticide, and a liquid fertilizer that has potassium and boron in soybeans this year. I'm wondering, is that a good idea to do all those three things at the same time during the reproductive stages? Or should I split that fertilizer application out and do it with my post herbicide a little bit earlier so I don't have to do this three-way mix fungicide insecticide fertilizer?
1: We throw fungicide together with insecticide, together with fertilizer, probably even two, well, I'd say two times a lot of times in in soybeans. I don't really have any issue with that. I'm I'm fine with it. It's just you got to understand that we don't want a crop to ever run short on any nutrient. So if it needed nutrients earlier, then yeah, I would have said, hey, do it earlier. But I don't know in your situation what what your soil fertility is or anything else. I do know this. In soybeans, they don't typically need lots of nutrients until you get to flowering. After flowering, they need a ridiculous amount of nutrients. So I I think what's being proposed here is certainly not bad. Now, I'm not saying that that I would definitely use that particular fungicide or insecticide or fertilizer combination. I mean that all depends, but I'd just say the thought of fungicide plus insecticide plus a little bit of fertilizer is that's certainly not a bad idea.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's just assuming that you know each of those three things provide a return on investment. You're just wondering uh, when you should put each of them out. And uh, yeah, all three of those, if the, the insecticide, if you've got bugs out there you need to kill, great. Uh, fungicide oftentimes R2 to R3 is a, an ideal timing if you're just doing one fungicide application in beans. And if that happens to work out that you also have bugs at that time, uh, your crop can certainly use some potassium and boron at that part of the the season. There's pretty high draw. Okay. Uh, Another question, how do you get stuff out there? This one comes from Greg. He said, all right, I can't justify $500,000 to get a used self-propelled sprayer. I'm thinking about drones. Have you guys used them? Will you be doing anything with drones or doing any shows on them anytime soon?
1: We haven't done anything with drones yet. I really wanted to last year, and I thought we had it lined up, and then it just didn't happen. So hopefully it's going to happen this year. (laughs) let's put it this way. Um, You can get over a lot of acres really fast with a self-propelled sprayer. And when you get done using that self-propelled sprayer three years, five years, 10 years from now, it's still worth a lot of money. We have a 10 year old self-propelled sprayer. We're in the exact same boat you are. We would like to get a different one, cost a lot of money, but this old one, I am shocked at how much it's still worth. The drones, Chances are, if you use it two years, they're probably not going to be worth nothing. They're not going to be worth a thing, is my guess. Because the newer ones, every year the technology is so much better. The old ones are obsolete. So if they're worth anything, it'll be very little, is my guess. So that's one of the things to consider. But just looking at, I mean, going into something brand new, you're used to running a sprayer, you're not used to running drones. So I like the idea of, hey, let's think out of the box, and what could we do to try to get a job done for less money? But I, I don't know if the efficacy is going to be there. I don't know if you're going to be able to get the job done. I don't know what problems you're going to run into. You definitely have to get licensing and get approved. I mean, this is like an FAA deal. You're a pilot now when you're operating a drone in the United States. So there are... There are just quite a few things here. So I might consider, if it was me, just trying some this year and then see how it goes. And if it works great, hey, do a bunch more in the future.
0: All right. Thanks for the question, Greg. Yeah, and if uh, if you're using a drone, let us know how it's working out. We, we'd love to hear about it. Uh, I get this from a different Greg. This Greg's down in Kansas. He said, all right, I uh, attended your soils clinic and you had a fertilizer calculator Excel file. I got a couple of questions. So, uh, number one, you're doing the calculations on this spreadsheet for each one acre grid across your whole farm. And number two how are you variable rating all of the fertilizers and micros? Sometimes it looks like you've got 10 or more things to do on a particular field. I've got a fertilizer spreader on a self-propelled spreader that's only got two bins. So how would you approach it with a two-bin spreader? Okay.
1: Okay, so first of all, we don't use the calculator on our farm at all. What we're doing is we're using software to do that and create all our different zones. So we've had a couple different soil test apps in the past that we've used. Now we're using Verify, that's V-R-A-F-Y. So then everything can be automatic. So way simpler that way. As far as what would I do if I had 10 things that were all off? Well, here's, I'll just tell you, let's just talk specifically micronutrients. There was one field a few years ago that was low on four micronutrients and I said, okay, We all we, I don't want to go over this field multiple times, So here's what we're going to do. We're going to buy a product that is not blended, but every prill has all four of those micronutrients in there. And then we're going to put that out. So we get, I don't remember if it was one or two of the micronutrients all taken care of. So we still did variable rate, but we got the, the lowest two, the easiest two to hit all done. And at least we got two of the others. The next year, we went out there with a product that had two in the prill and variable-rated that, and so then we took care of, again, the lowest, the, the easiest one to do, and then the third year, we just went and spread, I think the last year was Bora. So that's how we've done it over the years, and we have so many things to do. We'll just do some kind of blend, and we'll at least target the lowest level and get that one all taken care of so the next year, we don't even have to put any of that on, we're we're now over to or instead of 10 things maybe by the next year we're down to six things and the next year we're down to four and then two and then we get them all taken care of eventually so that's one way to handle it otherwise we've done it before where we have literally gone across the field again and again and again and we said no, nope, we're doing it all this year it, it depends a little bit on the year honestly like this march um, why could we not be out there a bunch of times? I mean, the frost is out of the ground. It's 70 degrees. And we have a month and a half before we can plant corn. So I'm pretty interested in getting some other things done that we wouldn't normally be able to do.
0: All right. Uh, this one comes in from Andy out in Illinois. He said, after uh, listening to the Kinsey seminar here, a couple of questions for you, and they run together a little bit. Uh, what do you use for the Albright-Kinsey system uh, when you're working with other growers? And then what do you use for your farm to manage fertility and seeding decisions? What soil measurement all the system?
1: Same. Yeah, it's all the same. Um, so we run Malik 3 tests. And then we talk often about many of the same principles that Neil and uh, Dr. Albrecht were talking about, I mean, Albrecht 50 years ago. So it's a lot of those same concepts. It's about balancing soil, having good levels of all nutrients, as opposed to just focusing on N, P, and K. Don't get me wrong. N, P, and K is super important, but we can't forget about all the other things, including stuff like calcium and magnesium. Now, I will say this. When Neil was talking, he puts more emphasis on the calcium and magnesium than we do. We're not saying it's not important, but I will usually just rank NP and K ahead of calcium and magnesium. That's all I'm getting at. I still want to fix the calcium and magnesium stuff over time, but a lot of times not my very first priority.
0: Hey, thanks for the question. Thanks for tuning in for that seminar too. It was really good to hear about soil fertility and, and learn a little bit more about what's working around the world. Thanks for listening to today's program. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.